0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Nina is off this week, so Helen and I are here to do Triangle of Sadness. I will kick us off. Triangle of Sadness came out in 2022. It was nominated for Best Picture, but didn't win. The film has three parts. The first part introduces us to Carl and Yaya. Carl and Yaya are both professional models. They date each other as a business venture to pool their followers and increase their online influence. Yaya understands the dynamic. She approaches the relationship from a purely transactional standpoint, demanding Carl pay for everything when they go out to eat and making a scene whenever he offers even a modicum of resistance. Carl finds the transactional nature of the relationship impossible to confront. Even when Yaya explicitly tells Carl that she aspires to one day become the trophy wife of a very rich person, Carl insists that she will eventually come to love him. Eventually, the business venture pays off. Carl and Yaya are given a free cruise. The cruise company wants them to take and post photos online that make the cruise look like a good time. This brings us to the second part of the film, where we are introduced to a variety of wealthy tourists and a variety of poor staff members. The staff are desperate to please the rich guests, both in the hope of receiving tips and out of fear of getting fired. At one point, Yaya flirts with a staff member. Carl gets jealous and reports the staff member for improper attire. The staff member is summarily fired. Carl seems to feel bad about this, but he doesn't intervene. Later, one of the rich guests tries to be nice to the staff by demanding that all the staff members go for a swim. This imposed fun enormously inconveniences the staff. They have to pretend to enjoy the swim, even as the swim prevents them from performing their duties. When these duties go unperformed, they get in trouble. So to avoid upsetting the customer now, they are forced to upset the customer later. The swim forces them to delay dinner, and the delay causes the seafood to go bad. The rich guests contract food poisoning, and the situation disintegrates rapidly. The ship captain, played by Woody Harrelson, occupies an interesting position in all this. As the captain, he is at the service of the rich guests, but because he is the captain, there is an assumption that he has professional expertise. This professional veneer offers him some level of protection. If he is not available to interact with guests, the assumption is that he's busy doing important captain things. In point of fact, he spends most of the cruise hiding in his room. We never see what the captain does in there, but when people knock on the door and try to speak to him, we get the impression the captain is very likely drunk. But without entering the room and disturbing the captain, it is impossible to be absolutely certain that this is the case. The captain has figured out that if he makes one appearance during the cruise, that will suffice. He pulls himself together for that one appearance, looking and sounding like a competent ship captain. He is still expected to be polite and deferential during this appearance, but as the captain, he is permitted some level of eccentricity. At the dinner, he chooses to eat a burger, avoiding the poisonous seafood. As the dinner disintegrates, the captain debates a Russian oligarch about the merits of capitalism and socialism. The captain defends socialism, while the oligarch defends capitalism. They drink, and they quote various dead socialists and dead capitalists at one another. Eventually, they become so drunk that they begin having their argument over the ship's intercom, blasting it into the ears of the very sick and very miserable guests. The exchange itself is banal. The arguments they advance are neither sophisticated nor novel. They use the political debate to entertain each other, while in point of fact the material conditions on the ship are rapidly disintegrating. In addition to the food poisoning, there's a storm. The storm rocks the boat, and the seasickness it generates worsens the effects of the food poisoning. Just when we think things can't get any worse, pirates attack the ship. The ship goes down, and the film moves on to part three, the part where the survivors wash up on an island. On the island, social relations are inverted. The crew member who had the lowest position on the ship is the one most capable of catching fish, Since she can catch the fish, she can distribute it in whatever way she likes. She uses her leverage as the fish catcher to dominate island life, reducing both the rich guests and more senior members of staff to her servants. Carl is eventually compelled to sleep with the fish catcher in exchange for food. This horrifies Yaya, but in this context, Yaya has nothing to offer Carl, and so Carl ends up with a middle-aged woman in whom he would ordinarily have no interest. Once again, Carl is not able to confront the transactional nature of his relationship with the fish catcher, insisting that it's based on love, or might in the future come to be based on love. He tries to persuade the fish catcher to join him in this ideological narrative, but the fish catcher refuses to participate. Carl gives her love, and she gives him fish. The truth is beautiful, and the ideological carapace is unnecessary. There is no other way for Carl to feed himself. He has no useful skills and is valued for his beauty alone. Eventually, Yaya and the fish catcher go on a scouting adventure together. They discover that the island is not uninhabited. In fact, it's a resort. Yaya is excited to finally escape, but the fish catcher is loath to leave this lifestyle behind. The film ends with the fish catcher clearly considering beating Yaya to death with a rock to prevent her from telling the others. As the fish catcher thinks about this, Yaya promises to give the fish catcher a better job when they return to society. Does this convince the fish catcher to kill Yaya or to spare her? We never find out. For me, the most interesting bits are the bits to do with the captain and with Carl. Carl is the person who insists on ideology, even when he is given every opportunity to discard it. He needs ideology to accept his social role. In each of the parts of the film, there is a moment when Carl retreats into his ideology to spare himself a confrontation with the real. In part two, this retreat gets an innocent worker fired. Carl is himself subject to exploitation, but his position as a male model sometimes gives him the power to pass some of the cost of this exploitation onto someone else, provided he can adopt an ideological frame that allows him to justify this buck-passing behavior to himself. The captain adopts a countercultural perspective. He can verbalize a critique of capitalism, and the fact that he can verbalize this critique and subject the rich guests to it allows him to feel superior to them. But, in point of fact, he is still their captain. He must sail their ship, answer their questions, and make his appearance. His critique is never actualized because he never takes any meaningful political action, spending his life at sea, serving the rich while trying to convince himself he resists them. In point of fact, he does not resist them. He hides from them on the very ship he sails for them, and then he drinks to forget this. Triangle of Sadness is not merely a critique of the rich or a critique of capitalism. It is a critique of the middle class, of the Carls and the captains. That, for me, is what really elevates this film and makes it worthy of your time. The rich are untroubled by films like these, and the poor rarely see them. The viewer most likely occupies the same social position as Carl and the captain. Are you and I really any different from them? What would it mean to be different? Is it even possible? The film doesn't have very happy answers to these questions, and I think this is what limits its appeal a bit. Some critics view it as nihilistic. Even when the social order is turned upside down in Part 3, this just results in an inversion of the same exploitative relationships that went before. The order is critiqued, but the critiques are a diversion, never ultimately changing the trajectory of the thing. Ultimately, Triangle of Sadness is a despair film. And I think that is why its title is so apt. I happen to think that a little bit of despair does us some good right about now, but that's a view that won't be shared by all. Let's see if Helen shares it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting film and very enjoyable. And obviously it brings to mind um, the sort of spate of uh, wealthy person satire. So, you know, succession and White Lotus in this film. But I, I have sort of... Been for a while a bit like, I guess, critical of of these kinds of, uh, this kind of programming. I kind of feel like it's, uh, cathartic rather than, um, emancipatory. Not that everything has to be like political in that sense, but it has a sort of, um, capitalist structure. With that puts forward sort of anti-capitalist ideas in a certain way, um, but actually, I think what makes film really powerful is to exploit the capitalist structure of film to then invert it and to show the inherently. Uh, ins- well, wouldn't say inherently. Okay, because this is really actually just a whole can of worms. Because I'm actually watching a book about this, so I'm not going to able to summarise it in like five minutes. <laughs> like, um, but the the true nature of subjectivity and how. Capitalism is like a um, uh, exploits the um, unnatural aspect of human subjectivity that is also the thing that makes us human. But anyway, um, yeah. So it is. It's interesting. Like all of these different um, sets of programming do different things. Like White Lotus, I feel, um, has a sort of uh, a more like aren't rich people so stupid? And like uh, we get we sort of get off on sort of laughing at this sort of maybe exception to the norm. And there is in the first season, this maybe this idea that there's, um, there are better forms of society and better types of people in society than these rich people. And obviously, this is slightly different. It has, uh, it has a very sort of like, um, Swedish, uh, comedy. There's a sort of like form of comedy from a, a number of Swedish films that are to do with like putting forward a kind of still life and, uh, a kind of like absent, uh, sense of sort of a director and kind of just like showing a scene and sort of how it plays out in a kind of non-directly um, like directly forward-moving narrative, but sort of like a funny series of events and sort of very reminding us of the animalistic nature of humanity and how we sort of ignore this animalistic nature. And this is play, plays out in lots of the, the sex scenes, lots of the scenes to do with um, bringing to light the true... Uh, material dynamics of a certain like marital contracts and all that kind of stuff, the killing of animals when it comes to uh, these wealthy people having to sort of fend for themselves. But yeah, I think it sort of does miss a trick in a way. Like I, I, I found it fun and, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the jokes are very insightful. Uh, They sort of do this thing where, I mean, again, it's sort of exposing what's going on. So really, you know, you were saying like um, Carl is really a character who, through his character, ideology is exposed because it's brought to the light, but it doesn't really expose why it's going on. And it's sort of, you know, again, it's like this kind of critique and it's like, well, at the end of the day, like, ha, 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 that happens. And, um, but I also sort of feel, you know, I've actually worked in sort of some of these environments and I think what's truly powerful about witnessing this kind of thing is not that, oh, it's funny and crazy and aren't these people so ridiculous. It's more the, the utter tragedy of it. And the utter tragedy of it um, kind of speaks to the utter tragedy of the entire system that rises just a handful of people into this tragic situation that's extremely depressing. Um, and I think that what film does really well is that it brings, because of its very structure, it brings viewers along um, a journey of desire and um, by exploiting this aspect of subjectivity that plays into the market system. And then it's capable of undercutting that desire and that investment, that libidinal investment, with um, a certain kind of radical insight. Um, and I mean, yeah, as I say, I'm not gonna like completely explain the logic of that, because it just takes too long. But this this film, and uh, you know, it's it does have a sort of like three-part structure or whatever, but it's not really a kind of. Um, film in that sense of going on a journey and discover it. it's more a kind of a portrait, um, where funny things happen and, uh, funny insights are sort of brought to light. And I think that it is quite satisfying rather than radical or satisfying rather than emancipatory, because even though, as you say, this is potentially for the, the middle class audience of the likes of Carl and and um, and the ship captain, there's still this sense that they can identify with the ship, even though the ship captain is being sort of sent up, there is this sort of sense of like um well, partly because you know human subjects are sort of divided. And so in one sense it doesn't matter if you have the insight of um What's really going on? You still invest in the person. So I I sometimes think about things like, um, you know, uh, Blackadder. I don't know if you ever watched Blackadder growing up. And then um, the sort of in the World War One Blackadder episodes, there was this sort of series uh, with different characters and different different roles. And you have the kind of staff officers. So. the the general and then his sort of underlings who don't, they don't go to the front and they sort of live in more kind of luxurious circumstances. And obviously they are sort of sent up as being like ridiculous and um, cowardly characters. But I think at the end of the day, when you watch it, you sort of think like, oh, I'd like to be in that position kind of thing. So, you know, we still kind of invest in this sort of way, despite a kind of conscious critique, because I don't think like we all know how bad capitalism is, right? You can have this Dimitri character who's a who's a, a Russian oligarch who sells shit for a living. And, um, you know, he, and you know, the way it's depicted, I think depicts uh, shows or uh, the, the dynamic that kind of exists because he can be very good friends and very chummy with somebody who's citing kind of Karl Marx at him. It doesn't matter. You know, you can have all the insights in the world and we can, it can be very clear how like, absolutely unfair it is i'm in downtown la at the moment and it's the streets are full of homeless people and homeless people are such a like classic example of how we just do such a job of complete being able to see and be horrified on a conscious level but unconsciously we're able to completely disavow what's going on um so i think these kinds of programming yeah that uh, it's interesting because we often talk about well you know, films are all woke these days and they're about identity rather than class and they should be about class and wouldn't that be lots, you know, way more radical. But in a sense, it you know, it doesn't, the critique of, I think that the good critique of um, sort of fake diversity films is to do with this consciousness raising, that actually consciousness raising doesn't really matter because um, when it comes to the economy, okay, you know, obviously when it comes to sort of things like somebody needs help, Here's a problem. I'm aware of it. I'll donate some of my money to charity to help. Fine, fair enough. But in terms of the the real way that the libidinal system of capitalism works, consciousness raising isn't enough, and you need sort of like unconsciousness raising, which points to the truth sort of libidinal psychological and you know kind of unconscious structural dynamics of capitalism and again like this is just goes to show we have all of these films all this output but it just gets worse and worse and worse i don't know what year succession came out but it was pre-pandemic and i mean it's literally i don't know how many orders of magnitude worse economically than it was then so these things it it doesn't work but what film is capable of doing unlike any other um art form i would argue is to unconsciousness raise, and it does this through um in fact kind of using a system of, of narrative that at first blush seems capitalistic but is actually able to be undercut by the form itself. So yeah, I mean it was kind of fun, it's funny um, but in terms of whether it's sort of like a radically political piece I wouldn't say so. Hmm
0: I mean I didn't find it that funny Yeah I... <laughs> I found the most funny about like, you know, you,
1: when they're explicitly arguing about um, Yaya and Carl about their, um, you know, who pays for what. And, you know, they're using the sort of mutually manipulative sort of techniques where there's a scene where uh, they're at an expensive restaurant. The bill is laid on the table. Uh, Yaya obviously sees it. And doesn't offer and then just says thanks, Carl. And then there's this whole question of did you see it or did you not? And you know, and it's all like we we can all recognize this dynamic, right? And they're sort of just what's funny about it is they're just saying the thing that we all know, but we all sort of through kind of like cultural norms choose to forget. So, you know, the the sort of like rapey bit with um Abigail, who's the she's a cleaner on the boat, and then when in the in the stranded aspect, she's the chief and um you know, yeah, it is funny. But there, again, I think you're right. Like there's different kinds of humor. There's sort of like that um humor today. Well, lots of kinds that I wouldn't really call humor. There's like bashing over the head with a moral message humor that we see so much in comedy these days. We can get into some examples. Then there's sort of like the smug, self-satisfied humor, which I think like satire does, a sort of cathartic humor. And then there's sort of stuff that's genuinely funny, like cathartic, uh, like a sort of more emancipatory humor. And I kind of think this sort of fits into the, Middle bracket, but
0: I didn't find it really that cathartic. Mm-hmm. I found it very. I found this film very sad. Yeah, I really felt it was more sad than funny because uh, nobody in this film is having a good life. And maybe if you're watching it, you you know just like Woody Harrelson, and so you identify with the Woody Harrelson character because it's Woody Harrelson. Uh, And you just watch the film from the vantage point of Woody Harrelson, then, yeah, it would look more that way. Because to Woody Harrelson, all of these people, their suffering is funny. Uh, Not to Woody Harrelson himself, but to the character. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, from where I was sitting, it seemed that Woody Harrelson's life was at least as sad as anybody else's.
1: Absolutely. No, I think this is absolutely true. But again, I think this is like the reason why I say it's cathartic is I think that like the characters are all like such exaggerated, but, you know, so you have like Ludmilla, who's this original wife of um, this Russian oligarch, and he's now got a younger wife as well. And these are people who just seem so out there and ridiculous and not really people that you can identify with. And so they're sort of like, um, you know, I think the person that you can most identify with is probably Carl, who's the male model uh, in a relationship with this more famous female model Yaya and I think that's partly done by the way that the film opens with this character Carl as he goes through a kind of very um sort of patronizing and exploitative like modeling interview but I I feel like it, it is very much kind of like surreal caricatures rather than um Yeah, I I personally don't feel it gets to kind of like quite how abjectly
0: depressing these worlds really are. I I didn't really feel like they were surreal caricatures. These people seemed kind of familiar to me. Uh, I think in the case of, of Carl... I think Carl's character makes the point you were making that consciousness raising is not enough because Carl repeatedly is made very explicitly conscious of his situation. Mm -hmm. And even when he's told directly by the other people who are parties to the relationships that this is his situation, he just refuses it.
1: Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get at with um, why I feel like it doesn't do sort of this unconsciousness raising rather than consciousness raising, because it's like, even though the character shows, so it's constant. The film is consciously showing that Carl disavows, but it doesn't operate, the film doesn't operate on the audience where it gets us to ad- address our own disavowal through transference. So I would argue that like film has this capacity to operate like the analytic process. So we engage libidinally in a film. So we go to psychoanalysis, kind of believing that the psychoanalyst is going to be able to transform our lives and sort of sort out our problems. And this investment that we have, transference, allows us to invest in it. And it's only through transference that we can kind of come to understand that this person is just a person like anything else. We can't, we don't have the capacity to just consciously say, uh, you know, somebody who's an authority is an illusion. We have to invest through transference, which we automatically do because we have this existential sense of lack and that we kind of invest in these big others that we believe can solve our internal antagonisms. But they can't. But we have to kind of like libidinally invest in order to have this ripping of the temple curtain in order to get to the other side of this ideological investment. And it's kind of why, you know, like Lacan says, only a Christian can be an atheist. But I sort of feel like film works best in that way. And so, this sort of standoffish, like, ha ha ha, look at this, isn't it ridiculous? I don't think it kind of works in that way. It doesn't work libidinally in that way. And we, so we just sort of get a kind of like, ha ha ha, isn't that funny? And, and, and,
0: and the I I didn't really read it as ha ha ha, isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. I take your point that it's, it's not like Pig. So yeah, Pig was, is a film Pig that we is saw a lot of, of this. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. So Pig is a film that inverts the ordinary film. So in the ordinary film, you have a character you sympathize with. This character wants something. The character goes through a bunch of hoops, but eventually gets the thing. Then the movie ends with a party. In Pig, you go through all of these hoops and you just discover that you can't get the thing that you want. Even if you did get it, it wouldn't make you happy. And you're forced to confront that the whole journey you know, doesn't really work. Yeah, right. and I think that's what you're getting at—that a film that makes you confront the fact that the whole journey doesn't work is much richer and more satisfying than a film that uh, pretends as if you can actually get the thing that you want and then you'll live happily ever after. I, I think this film is is neither one of those types of films. I agree with you that it's not like Pig, but I also, you know, I think we also agree that it's not like, you know, a, a Disney film where the character does get everything that mm-hmm. they want in the end. I don't think that, well, I I take your point that some films that are doing neither of those things just fail to get you to invest in any of the characters and leave you in this kind of standoffish position where all you can do is make fun of what's going on. I think that this film is, uh, is a little bit better than that. I could see how you might think that it is that or how you could watch it in that way. But I think that this film does invite you to to look at the characters of Carl and the captain as uh, characters who are trying to go on this kind of journey and get things, uh, but have gone radically off the tracks in how they've gone about trying to live life. They've made certain fundamental mistakes. And while you can see something in them that you may like, something human in them, by the time you meet these characters, they're way, way off the track, doing something that makes it impossible for them to really live fully flourishing lives. You know, the model, because he's gotten into this fake relationship so that they can make money. You know, he's completely off off the tracks. But he wants to believe somehow this will lead him where he originally intended to go when he decided to go into all of this. Uh, And similarly with the captain. He's in a role which makes no sense for him, given what he says he values. But he's tried to uh, adopt an attitude to the role that allows him to stay in it, even though it manifestly doesn't work for him. And I think this is this is the common experience of going, okay, I'm going to make a compromise. And this compromise is going to, in some ways, take me away from what I originally thought I'd get, hoped I'd get when I went into the workforce, into the professional class role. But I'm going to make up for this compromise with some kind of attitudinal shift. Mm -hmm. There's something I'm going to do with my attitude that's going to make the compromise okay, or it's going to make me better than the ordinary person who makes this compromise. So, you know, even though I become an investment banker, I'm an investment banker who has a certain attitude to being an investment banker that, that nullifies the fact that I am actually in this role. And so with these characters, they're they're sympathetic insofar as they are well-meaning people who, because of the structure of the system, have been sucked into these roles that are bad for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the case of Carl, Carl actively hides this from himself because he just can't look at it. In the case of the ship captain, the ship captain has precisely the attitude which you would expect the audience member to have in the kind of film that I think you saw this as, where... You're just making fun of everybody. Yeah, you know, that—that That is the captain's attitude to everybody mm-hmm. in the film. But what does it do for the captain? Nothing. The captain just ends up having this attitude as uh, a way of distancing himself from his actual situation, which is that he is still a ship captain who serves these people. And in the same way, the person who watches a movie that it critiques capitalism and laughs at everybody in it the person who uh, whether it's parasite or, or this movie or, or whatever that person you know is able to go "Ha ha! i can laugh at this and other people can't but that doesn't actually get them out of it and the ship captain is so radically not out of it that he spends most of the time that he's conscious drinking mm-hmm. because he can't cope with it
1: no but i i think that's true but i think the thing is that's not what the film is doing, but what because you have a kind of like knowledge, a very well thought through like assessment of how these people ended up in this position. But I don't think the average I don't think that comes across in the film itself. And for instance, I would I would I think a Parasite is a really fantastic film that does this really well. And I kind of feel like the most I would be so interested to see. And it's I mean I guess it's just, you know that this as you say this was not Oscar nominated or whatever. And you know there is a sort of um that's reflective of the fact potentially that this this is a film that's not doing what it could do even though it says it's doing it you know but or it it consciously is you know anti-capitalist and it's kind of in it's kind of like content but i would i'd would be so interested in a film that that uses the like the the pig structure for instance within this kind of universe or for instance Carl's, carl's perspective and it could be a comedy that takes place in the same sort of situation or whatever but it's um it's so i don't know if you saw the previous film of this director the square which i really didn't enjoy and this i thought was a a lot better but the the first film that i obviously that he's well known for is this one force majeure which is about a family a sort of middle-class family going on holiday and they're sort of on a skiing holiday and this um they're at a, a lunch and there's in the distance, there's an avalanche in the background and everybody sort of is like scared. And um, this is a very like traditional kind of like husband, wife, and two kids. And the husband runs away, you know, and then this sort of sets off this kind of, it's the same thing. It's kind of like exposing that like, you know, we have these roles and we assume these certain things, but actually at the end of the day, you know, people are cowardly or people, you know, don't, don't live up to the kind of ideolo- ideological expectations and how they're sort of like, this small insight like destroys you know the holiday and 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 what have you and but the 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 other the second one was about the art world and sort of how ridiculous the art world was but and again has this sort of like animalistic undertones or whatever but I just sort of feel like it's it's an interesting form of filmmaking and I think it's it's great and you know it's really well made and the the cinematography was beautiful and like the scenes are enjoyable but it is. I kind of feel like I get maybe as a viewer, maybe this is because I have a feeling that it's something that I'm trying to do. Maybe like I find it frustrating that I feel like we have, you know, that this wider sort of social issues, um, and then we have films like this and and which I do think is is more interesting in a way than the likes of like Succession and and White Lotus and stuff. And obviously, this is a film about this is a podcast about this film, not not the others per se. But I would I would just I would personally have found it more, um, you know, like better as a viewer <laughs> to, to to experience, for example, Carl's experience through a kind of more like buildings, roman or like straightforward, like even though you can do amazing things with narrative when you have that kind of libidinal dynamic of the narrative set, but this sort of just like putting people in scenes it doesn't do it for me. But that's just passing hmm. yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because I saw this one with my girlfriend. Yeah. And my girlfriend liked the beginning of the film, at least it seemed to me. But at the scene where they all get sick at the dinner, she kind of got off the bus with it. And I think for her, that scene was too much just making fun of everybody from a distance.
1: That's the same with me. I, I loved it up until that point. And then I was like, I just...
0: Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, she got off the bus and uh, I, I kind of stayed with it. And I think I stayed with it because I found that I had this particular interpretation of the captain that made that scene work for me because I wasn't focused on laughing at the rich people. Uh, yeah, I was focused on what's going on with the captain and the oligarch. Uh, in between those scenes where everybody's miserable. And I I started to think about it as a kind of allegory for where our political debate is. We have this political debate that is still very 20th century in its focus that no longer connects with what's really going on. We have a situation where everybody is miserable, Mm -hmm. regardless of class, uh, for all kinds of reasons. But the discussion is in terms of various dead
1: That's very. That's a very good reading. I mean, and actually, yeah, when you read it like that, that scene is very spot on in that sense because that's that's precisely what's going on politically, right? You know, the sea is sinking, ship is sinking, whatever, and the sea potential and people arguing about the
0: Soviet Union and and Reaganism (laughs) and uh, uh, fascism and, and things that just don't have any real relevance with what's going on now, and that's what I I that. For me, I really liked that part. So that mm-hmm. gave me a buy-in. I felt the third part of the movie was probably the least interesting part um, because the third part is just an inversion of the previous yeah. social relations. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, and Woody Harrelson is gone. For whatever reason, the captain yeah. isn't there. And maybe it's because that kind of... I, I, I had this thought that the captain just cannot make sense without the ship. You know, you can't have yeah. that character there is no other role for him to go into or, or other thing for him to do. What's interesting about him is this very specific position he can only occupy in the context of the ship. And if you were to keep him on the island, they they wouldn't know what to do with him. He would be Woody Harrelson, so he'd get all the attention and it would suck all the energy out of what everyone else is up to.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. It is interesting because I guess it's, you know, this third scene where the nihilist, you know, criticism has come in. And, you know, so you have, a social order that's a precise inversion of the, the ship itself. And then uh, the ending is like basically a return to, so um, Abigail, who is the new leader because of her fishing skills, who is a cleaner on the on the boat, and Yaya, who's the um, internationally famous model, go on a look on the island that they've ended up with uh, to find a new, you know, if, if anybody's about there and they find a, Five star resort, which is obviously like an exact replica of the world of the yacht that they've just left behind. And obviously, Yaya's like, yes, let's go. But the um, cleaning, the lady who's a cleaner is obviously, you know, like, oh shit, would she, she would rather be, it claims, in the, um, in this, which I also think is a little bit kind of (laughs) facile. Not that everything has to be like correct, you know, or like, but you know, so, 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 basically saying that somebody who is, you know, of a of a different social strata would rather be, anyway. But yeah, I mean, you can't like general generalise that as just a movie or whatever. But um, yeah, it's. You have uh, to make a
0: point to say she doesn't have kids so that you'll buy it. You
1: buy, yeah, I know exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's, no, I thought that was quite funny. But um, yeah, but it is, it is true. The Woody Woody Halston character is an interesting character, but it's interesting as well. Like, um. That, that you identi- identified with Woody Harrelson, because he's such a small character and he comes in sort of only for the middle third and he's only really in one scene, but his sort of voice is in um, the other scenes. And I guess if there was a, a main character, it would probably be Carl. Um But again, you know, and I think the reason why um, Carl would be read as the main character more generally is because there is an attempt to... The, to get, I think, the audience to libidinally invest in Carl, as you know, in terms of empathy, and to identify with him in terms of his position, um, because of the opening scene. But yeah, and this isn't this isn't to say. So this isn't to say that you can't do films in this way. I, I absolutely think that you can. But you know, what I think makes a film a film, in my opinion, is not does it have a start to finish narrative, but does it employ a certain libidinal dynamic on the part of the audience which is easiest to do if it's a start to finish narrative, conventional narrative, but there's all sorts of other ways to do it. And, but, you know, I would say this was more of like a still life and a set of scenes with a sort of chronological component, which is great in and of itself, but I would just love to see a film that gets the audience libidinally invested in the kinds of things that the uber rich are up to and then really exposes the tragedy of it I personally am waiting for that to be made, but I haven't yet to see it.
0: Well, I think you should make it. I I, I think that the, the first part, yeah, they're they're trying to get you to invest in Carl. I think the second part of the movie moves away from Carl mm-hmm. and Yaya to a substantial degree, to the point where I don't really think the second part of the movie is about them. Yeah. It, I think it's really about the ship captain and the crew and, and how they're interacting with the rich people. Uh, And in that context, Carl and Yaya are just visitors, really, to a world that isn't really theirs. Mm -hmm. And then in the third part, I almost felt that the film was more from the fish catcher's point of view. Uh, Maybe to some degree, you're still in Carl because you had Carl at the beginning. But I thought it was really following the point of view of the fish catcher a lot Mm -hmm. uh, of what would you do if you suddenly had this opportunity? Um, And maybe there was an invitation to to feel a certain catharsis for the fish catcher finally getting a chance to invert it all Mm -hmm. i saw it more as a negative thing of just if you do and go into some kind of state of nature pre-social situation you just get something that is different or something that's inverted you don't get something better so a kind of negation of primitivism and anarcho-primitivism which i think has some value yeah i think so uh, yeah. yeah but not as as powerful a message as As I thought there was in the the first part, I think, was kind of I I wish we had Nina for the first part, because I think Nina would have found the gender dynamic in the first part. Interesting. Um, But uh, the second part I thought was really good just because I got into Mm -hmm. The Captain. Uh, But, yeah, I take your point that there are certainly I think Pig is a better film than this. If Pig is the film that comes closest to doing what you like, uh, which I think it probably is of all the films we've done. Um, you know, Pig, yeah, Pig is another, better than this yeah. film, but I, I think this film is still good. And yeah, I, no, I think it's it, good, and
1: yeah, it, it is. It's obviously like and stylistically and, and tonally, I thought it was very good, and and in terms of the way it was put together, I thought it was you know a really great achievement. But this is interesting because we're talking about like class, and as I say, like it's in in some ways it's very interesting because it's bringing out class dynamics that aren't usually brought out you know so we have but i have something about this not usually seen on screen sort of thing i think i've shared like (laughs) screenshots with you like every single person in the film industry these days is forced to say that their usp is that they like to to make films about voices who are not heard usually on screen it's like everybody literally everybody says this in this sort of reflexive way and we're but again and then and then yeah we do have more films now well do we question you know there's this whole thing of like uh Oh, is it a X, Y, and Z identity? And then you look at some film from the nineties that does it without, you know, say claiming that it does it. So um but yeah, no, but you can explicitly do things about, you can do things about a, you know, a class structure or about a um uh you know, being middle class and how it's different to being, you know, bourgeois or how it's different to being, you know, the exploited class, or whatever. But I still think it's just not really, it's not going to have that real emancipatory power. And I think because of that, it's not, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, it might get awards and things like that. And this film certainly did, did really well. And, you know, and that's, you know, congratulations to the filmmakers and everything like that. But it's not like, it's not, I don't think it really, does something to the audience and and, and therefore has this kind of um, power that might lead it to be something that is a film that says something about the human condition or, or is transformative in some way. And not every film has to do that at all, but I guess I'm just getting a bit done with these, which I, I watch all of these, by the way, and I enjoy them. So, But I feel like um, having worked in these situations and maybe having some sort of sets of ideas about, what film can do transformatively. It's like, I think there's a trick being missed, but it's not that it's everybody's responsibility to get get what I think in my head right for me. Well,
0: yeah, I, I think that there are certainly more things we can do with film than we've done. I'm not sure that there's anything we can do with film that would be so much as to make film inherently emancipatory, because at the end of the day, even a very good message on film Uh, a very well-constructed message is still a message in a film.
1: Yeah, no, it is. But, I mean, yeah, it's interesting that it's still still always made within the constraints of the market, and therefore, you know, you're limited with what you can do. But I do think that there are, um, because of the nature of um, subjectivity, this leads us to be the possibility of there being an opening within subjectivity that certain technologies that have been developed, including the transparent relationship between like analyst and analysts and, and film and other things, you know. But I think that this um, involves maybe an understanding of subjectivity that would lead, it is not automatically born in mind because it's in a sense easier to disavow it, to continue on. Um, but that, you know, in different, you know, we've talked a lot about like the the modern subject, right? That like the modern subject isn't necessarily better <laughs> because I, obviously religion is something that when religions emerge, I think that there is this sort of like tendency for there to be any, you know, religions can, can become kind of capitalistic or can become like, um, you know, on the side of death drive rather than like emancipation. But there is this sort of like attempt to deal with an acknowledgement of the nature of subjectivity in a certain way. And obviously now that like religion is off the table or explicit or confessional religion is off the table, but we still have the issues with subjectivity that like one would hope that there would be places where we could engage in kind of some of the aspects in a reckoning with subjectivity that we need somewhere, even though you know nothing's perfect and nothing's going to transform much, <laughs> considering there's nothing. <laughs>
0: Uh, particularly stuff that's in kind of universal culture, Mm -hmm. Uh, stuff that is readily available to lots and lots of people, large numbers of people all at once. Uh, I do think that there is still, it's still the case that the movie theater, the physical movie theater exists in a very large number of places, such that if a film achieves a sufficiently wide release, it can be seen by many, many, many people all in one go. Uh, Although it has in recent years become very difficult to get, even a reasonably good film, let alone a great film, into very large numbers of movie theaters. Um, to some degree, the streaming, I think, helps insofar as some films that cannot get a wide theatrical release do get onto streaming. But then you have to find them Yeah. on streaming. Exactly. And it takes people a while. Some people eventually do find them, but you need enough time to look around long enough. And and that tends to favor people who have time. And that cuts against uh, a cross, cross-class audience. Very much so. This one I, I did find on streaming. And mm-hmm. interestingly, about a week after I saw Triangle of Sadness, uh, my mother found it on her own on streaming. And I went, oh, Wow. So my, my mother actually watched Triangle of Sadness. I, I wouldn't have picked her out as somebody to go in search of it. But Netflix happened to pop it in front of her and she did see it. What did she think of it? There was a similar kind of thing where she was with it for the first half and then she got off of the bus. Uh, though she I think she did take the scene with everybody sick on the ship as cathartic and funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until. Part three that she got off the bus. So my girlfriend got off at the scene where everybody was seasick. My mother got off once they were shipwrecked on the island because she felt that that part was too brutal Mm -hmm. and too dehumanizing.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Um, I have to say my favorite character was the um, tech guy who struggled with women. I found him (laughs) pathetic. Um, but yeah there's obviously it's an interesting range of characters so there was a an elderly british couple who were arms traders and uh the way that they spun it was that they uh create products that help sustain democracy around the world kind of thing there was a a shit merchant from i think russia and his wife of his age and then a younger woman there was uh yeah, and Carl, the, the, uh, influencer couple models. There was this, yeah, this tech guy who was there on his own. And then I don't know if there are any more like guests. And then there's sort of, you know, something that they do get right is in the yachting industry. I mean, the, it is an interesting place to set a story because these places are absolutely crazy, you know, um, a, a yacht one of these sort of normal normal luxury yacht type things that if you were to hire them privately are about two million a week and you know you'd have maybe 32 there would probably be something like five or six staff to one person so the numbers are ridiculous and these yachts are kind of the experience is just bizarre you know you're you're in, in the middle of the ocean, and in this sort of like, obviously, the ocean doesn't sustain, you know, human life in the middle of the ocean. But um, these are places that not only are like a five star hotel, but they're like ridiculous. I mean, it's out of this world. You know, the, the, there are scenes where the, the six being sort of polished up the, off the floor, and you know, these are sort of sparkling. Inv- it's, it's just interesting that this, this is so appealing that it's a place where life is not sustainable, and yet. You know, the ultimate achievement, quote unquote, in this in this world is to have this luxury environment in the most inhospitable place. And obviously the second um, chapter of the film in this uh, where the, the the sick shit show happens, they're having this luxury dinner in the middle of this sort of like storm. But there's an early scene in this second part where a helicopter is sort of like um, going through the ocean and and has a sort of a like a pelican case, uh, which looks like it has some kind of like really important, you know, materials in it um, that gets dropped into the ocean and then somebody sets it, uh, gets a boat and picks it up and the thing that's delivered is Nutella and it is like it's a classic classic is a friend of mine who works for a, 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 a royal family somewhere in the world um, has um, had to you know just to go to to get like a a packet of dates from an afternoon tea like fly across multiple countries just to get the one specific thing you know this is just absolutely ridiculous and it's it's interesting right it's interesting that like this is it's funny um doing a a piece of work at the moment about uh, a family that was sort of cancelled 40 years ago for or 30 years ago for um excessive spending but like the, the 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 what we're talking about today in terms of excessive spending is like <laughs>
0: ridiculous Yeah, I have to say, I I thought that at least up until the point at which the ship goes down. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's somewhere in that scene where everybody's sick and the pirates attack. At some point, it becomes unbelievable. But for quite a while in part two, I felt the ship environment was pretty believable. Mm -hmm. And in terms of this inhospitable environment, there was a time I, I went to Las Vegas. And I found Las Vegas to be a bit like that ship in terms of you know, here's a city in a place where human life cannot ordinarily be sustained and is only sustained through a lot of infrastructure and technology and logistics. And yet, you know, you have all of these people and they're not at all concerned about all of that. They're there to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Their good time is entirely artificial. It's all machines and, and play places and, and stuff made by people for people None of it really comes from the environment, apart from the fact that it doesn't get cold. Uh, and yeah, so I, I saw a lot of commonality there. It mm-hmm. also reminded me of a time I was at—I uh, think it was a dinner at a Cambridge college—and there was a guy there who was a bursar. You know, the bursars are yeah accountants at these Cambridge colleges; they handle the money. And the bursar was retired, and he was talking about how he was going on a trip like a six month or three month it was a very long trip to Australia uh, and he to- he told this story and then later in the same dinner he started talking about how you know everybody thinks that the college has so much money you know, but th- it doesn't really and you know uh, professors are always trying to you know get money out of the college and, and uh, you know grad students always want money out of the college and there isn't all this money for everybody uh, and he's going on this big trip. Yeah. As a retired bursar to <laughs> Australia And uh, he has no real awareness of the uh, irony of that
1: Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is is yeah, It's very difficult for humans to You know, the, 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 uh, to empathise with other humans Amounts of money Or, you know, where everybody feels like their lot is not Because there's always one person with more money So you always feel comparatively more Even though, yes, going on a six-month trip to Australia is not indicative of that but yeah no and i yeah. don't
0: i don't begrudge him you know yeah. it's just that he could say that while at the same time going why does anybody else think that there's money
1: you know in a in a like a ornate kind of gold gilded i don't know medieval building although you know there is this difference it's interesting to use the analogy of las vegas because obviously this is a sort of like new money environment and the the money that exists today uh is it's it's an interesting one in relation to taste and how that relates to the sort of a different order of you know um money under capitalism and how yeah like class classes have changed as in the class um the composition of of different classes and like how this has affected taste and how the taste in yeah some of the stuff i've seen in, in these kinds of environments uh <laughs> in terms of what's considered like artwork and it's it's kind of crazy you know <laughs> anyway we won't go there but um it's it is it, but it, yeah there is there is a sort of like well the thing the thing that is you know we're talking about like the point at which people are lost and so maybe that scene of like everybody puking and shitting everywhere That that's obviously a surreal and kind of an exaggerated scene because nobody gets um Food poisoning from oysters to that extent, but the thing is, it's like it doesn't need to be surreal. It's already extremely surreal. You know? The Nutella being dropped in the ocean, you know, the, when you when you line that up against the the puking and shitting, you think like, oh, maybe that's no, no, that's that's nothing compared to like the reality of what happened. So, um, but yeah, but as I say, like it just it it, it ends up. Despite these these shows, I'm sure like a lot of extremely wealthy people enjoy watching it, you know, as well. It doesn't it doesn't it's I don't think it's doing anything to threaten the onward like progress of, quote unquote, of, you know, extremely small portions of the population having more and more money and using them in infinitely bizarre and destructive ways.
0: Yeah, I also found interesting the the fish catcher. When she's on the ship and she's a crew member, you really hardly see her at all. She's just ordered around a little bit. She has very little dialogue. She isn't a subject on the ship. She's not really a character in the film. She's almost a background character, uh, almost someone with no lines, Uh, could almost have been played by an extra for all you would know. And then all of a sudden, she's a character, but she's only a character because she ceases to be a worker. Absolutely
1: really true. Yeah, yeah. That's a very the workers
0: point, are yeah. entirely subaltern in this film. They're yeah. entirely without any voice, unless they are either high enough up in the hierarchy that they can give orders or make demands on people, mm-hmm. uh, or you're on the situation of the island where the social structure is disintegrated. It's the only situation in which someone who's a worker can really speak in this film, and so you know there is this cant about. Oh, making films for different perspectives or for, you know, uh, featuring different voices that aren't usually heard. I think part of what's interesting about this film is that it, it overtly doesn't do that. There yeah, is yeah, no perspective exactly. that isn't ordinarily heard in this film. The perspective that isn't ordinarily heard, the worker's perspective is only heard in the context where they're no longer in that class. So the class is, never speaks, really,
1: and I think that's absolutely true. And I, I think that's a very, very good point. And it is something that the film does really well. And you're right; like as soon as this unheard voice is saying, "Well, as soon as it's heard in, in in material reality, not in the the context of this film," you know, it's already too late. You know, <laughs> or it's through the voice of somebody who is heard, who isn't the person who's unheard. But anyway, so but it is interesting. And I think there's, um, I think I, I can't even remember, but Abigail, who's this this cleaner who becomes the leader in um, on the island. She's the person who knocks on the door of, um, Carl and Yaya early in the film and says, do you want your room cleaned? Right. And we see her for like 20 seconds. It could yeah. be her. I mean, I can't remember. I think it is her. I think it is yeah. her.
0: Yeah. But, um, but you hardly would notice. Otherwise. You would hardly
1: notice, but it is interesting that suddenly you have, um, these workers and there's a, there's a pirate character as well subjectivized and how kind of bizarrely traumatic it is for the. Subjects of the earlier films, so the more bourgeois characters And how they have to quickly come to terms with the with reckoning with the subjectivity of the worker
0: Oh, <laughs> oh this is something I've neglected So yeah. one of the people who's washed up on the island in part three is a pirate I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty certain
1: Yeah, he is, yeah By the end of the film, it's true, yeah.
0: yeah And he says, when they ask him who he is, he says, oh, he was in the kitchen He worked in the kitchen and that's why they didn't see him And they all buy that yeah. Because none of them recognize anybody who's a worker on the ship and uh, it, it doesn't at all strike any of them as odd that they wouldn't know who somebody who worked in the kitchen was. And I think that underlines that, you know, these people who are not subjects are subjects only in the context where the society has collapsed. And that I think is some value added by no, the third party. I, I have to say that is a interesting very interesting
1: point. point. And I do think that scene where they're sort of sitting around the fire and Coming to terms with the subjectivity of Abigail, so she she kind of like um, gets dinner on the first night. She she wrestles with an octopus and cooks it, and they all want to share the meal. And she's like, "Wait, I I cook this. I'm getting half of it, you know." And they all have to reckon with it, and it's it's really it's really interesting. Um, But and it you know it gets the kind of like the actual the truth of like Hegel's master slave dialectic very well because the issue in the master slave dialectic is that the slave isn't a subject. And that's really a problem for the society because if you, you need the other, the dialectical other with whom to dialogue to, because it's only in the eyes of the other that you, you yourself are seen. So you never have like a clear picture of what's going on without the subjectivity of the other. So, you know, according to this logic, this is always doomed to failure. And I think this shows really well, you know, people are sort of master slave dial- dialectic is to do with one person and another person. It doesn't really, you know, people don't really reckon with the, the fact that it's to do with the fact that the slave or, you know, is, is not considered a subject, a dialectical subject. It's not really to do with, you know, power per se, but the fact that this person is dehumanized and not subjectivized. And this, yeah, it does it extremely well. It does it extremely well. And obviously, you know, in terms of like the racial dynamic in the yacht, you have the kind of, it's, you know, it's a Filipino group of people who are the kind of, Doing the the menial tasks, and then you have young European women mostly doing the kind of um, crew, and then you know some some men doing the. There's a Greek guy who's fired for taking his top off, as you described, and Carl drops him in. So there is a sort of like, and that obviously is part of, you know, the way in which in these situations, the the workers are you know rendered non subjects because there's a way to sort of distance them as as like you know racially other or whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have we have been yeah, able to it's, find it's, some it's, redeeming values
1: there. No, and I, I have to say, like, I don't want to be harsh, but I did, I did enjoy it. I think it's just a personal kind of, and I think we're kind of quite honest on this podcast. What's the point of having a podcast if you don't say what you think? But um, yeah, yeah. I, but I, I, I did think it was, it was, good, and I recommend that it's watched. I think it should be watched and celebrated. I think it's a very good, good film.
0: But you think we can do better, and you wanted yeah. to point to what we could do there. Yeah. Be
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, I think that's that's important because we are always uh, falling short. Anyway, we're pretty close to about an hour, so maybe we should wrap it there Sounds good. Cool. Uh, and go over and do the B-side for our Patreon listeners. You can do that on Patreon. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye.
1: Bye bye.